Well, good morning. We're getting there. We're going to make it. It is a joy to be with you this morning and uh, to be in the house of the Lord with the people of God is something I never want to take for granted. All right. Before we get into the sermon today, I do feel like I have a responsibility to address some of the things going on in our nation. But you're not going to get any hot takes from me this morning, I promise. I think if we are all honest with ourselves, something we can quickly recognize is that our nation is desperately in need of revival. I'm glad that got an applause. Um, now I can go home. Um, in Luke chapter 18, there's a, a parable that Jesus tells. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18 about two men that go into the temple to pray. One of these men is a Pharisee who follows the law, who does things right, and the other man is a tax collector, who in Jewish culture, the tax collector was the worst of the worst. They worked for those pig Romans. That's how they treated them. And so you have these two men that go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, he says, Lord, thank you so much that I am not like all of those other people out there. Thank you that I'm not an extortionist. Thank you that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I tithe. And thank you that I'm not like this man right here. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then the tax collector prays. It says that the tax collector's prayer was one where he beat his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it says that this man went away justified. And I think that there's a key here for us in what happens when revival starts. It's an honest look itself that says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Revival happens when we stop pretending like we are better than, like we are somehow above those sinners out there, and instead we start crying out as a body of Christ, as a church, Lord, have mercy on us sinners. This does not mean that we shy away from calling evil and wickedness in the world what it is. We call evil and wickedness out when we see it. But we do so not from a standpoint of pride and being better than. We do, for, do so from a standpoint of humility, recognizing that if it were not for the grace of God in my life, I would also be evil and wicked. Amen. If it was not for the grace of God, I would be partaking in all the things that I call evil. And so we do so, we call out wickedness, we call out evil, not from a position of pride, but from a position of humility, recognizing our need for a merciful God. One of the things that I would say has been the most heartbreaking to me in this season, um, and what I'm seeing in our nation right now, is watching Christians on social media. It is a tragedy that we have communicated a picture of God that is not what God communicates. We absolutely need to communicate truth, absolutely. But communicating truth without love 
is just as much a sin as not communicating truth at all. So my prayer is that the church in this time would step up to be a picture and reflection of Christ who died for his enemies, who laid down his life for his enemies, and who did not seek the position of being right without communicating love. And I think that's vital for all of us to move forward. I want to just share a quote um, from a uh, man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He was a pastor in the mid-1940s. And he says this. He says, The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism which surrounds us. Now let's pause for a second. Whatever you think is currently the central problem of our age, go ahead and add it to that list. So think for a moment. What you think the the greatest problem is, add it to that list, and then we'll continue. All of these things are dangerous, but they are not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem in our world is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. We have a responsibility in this season to seek God and His will for how we go about operating. And we always start with ourselves. We always start with looking inward. And we always start with, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner. I do not want to dedicate any more time than that to this this morning. I think we have other things that are more eternal than our current problems that I would love to get into today. So we're going to switch gears. It is an absolute joy to be a part of this church with you pursuing the Lord Jesus together. There is there's not a thing that I could desire more than to pursue the Lord with the people of God. I am, I am just so excited as we look forward to the future with this church. I am thrilled to see what God is going to do. Because it's in desperate circumstances that he works wonders. I am so excited to see us grow in our love for Jesus together. I am so excited to see the gospel influence every one of us and to shape every area of our lives together. I'm excited to see us be a church that looks outside of our four walls, that looks into our city and says, how can we be kingdom-minded together? I'm excited to partner with other churches in the city to bring about revival in our city. I'm excited to make disciples with you and to be in the disciple-making process together, to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And I'm praying that we would just eagerly anticipate the Lord doing a great work in our city and in our state, in our nation, and in our world. I expect Him to do great things because it's His nature. Last week, Kevin gave a teaching on vision. 
He talked about the fact that vision is incredibly important for the church, but one of the things that he said that was really important is to make sure that we're not just hearing from self, but that we're actually seeking God and saying, Lord, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you're trying to do? What do you want to accomplish? And we are listening for the voice of the Lord. We absolutely need to hear from the Lord. We need to be a church that isn't asking the Lord to bless what we're doing, but is instead asking God, God, what are you blessing, and how can we put our hands to that? Amen. Because we cannot go anywhere worth going if the Lord is not headed in that direction. So today, my main point, if you take anything from this sermon today, anything at all, it's this. If we build without God, it's pointless. But we can rest in Christ, who always builds his church. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to Psalm 127 with me? I'm going to read the first two verses. Psalm 127, starting in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are righteous, you are just, and that in all of those characteristics, you saw fit to love us and to bring us into your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to look to you. Help us to know how to build in your ways and not ours. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The beginning of last year, Julie and I had some, um, some work done on our yard. We, we bought a house in 2019, um, and we bought this house, but there was literally nothing in the backyard. We had this massive backyard, all dirt, all weeds, except for like an old shed and then a really ugly playset. And so this was all we had in our backyard, which was not very conducive for us hosting people in our yard, which is something we love to do. And so we thought, you know what, we're probably going to go ahead and make the investment to, to put like some nice things in our backyard. So one of the things we really wanted was a fire pit. Um, I just think there's such an amazing thing that happens when you're sitting around a fire pit with a warm beverage or a cold beverage in the summer, and you're just talking late into the evening and... I don't know what it is about fire that brings out things in me that I just want to talk with people for hours on end. So I was like, man, we want a fire pit, but we want a fire pit that's going to last because I had had some fire pits in the past that were the ones you buy from Target and they were rusty really quick whenever it would rain because I just don't pay attention to them. So I was like, all right, we're going to get a fire pit and we're going to have it built into our patio area. So we got a fire pit. Um, that was going to be built into our patio area. We started to work with the foreman of the project, and he started to show us the design, and we're like, all right, that's going to be great. So they start to work on our yard, and they get to the point where they're going with the fire pit, and they start to work on it one day. And I, I had gone into my office to do some work, and then I, 
I come out and, and I see that this fire pit looks huge. I'm like, man, this is, this is a massive fire pit. I don't know if it's supposed to be that big, but if you know me at all, building is not my thing. Like, my hands, when I get to a project, like, you just don't want me involved. You're better just like, hey, why don't you go run to the store and find these seven things we don't actually need? Um, that's pretty much how I'm involved in building. And so uh, I'm just like, okay, maybe I just don't know. Maybe I don't understand the process. That just, it looks big. And so I, I went back to my office, and then it just kept bothering me. Kept, I'm like, man, that's a huge fire pit. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So at lunchtime, I was like, I need to go get a closer look. So I, they took their lunch, I took my lunch, and I went outside and I looked at this fire pit. I'm like, man, this thing could roast a pig. Like, this is not what I'm thinking for my backyard. And so I called the foreman. I was like, hey, I don't know. I could be wrong. I just think this fire pit is too big for what we're trying to accomplish. Would you be, would you be willing to come out and just take a look at it and see um, if, this is, if this is just me or if this is something that I'm not seeing? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. So he comes out and he, he immediately is just like, oh my goodness. This is like twice the size of what we're supposed to be building. I'm like, okay, good, I'm not crazy. So he calls the guys and, and they come back and we start to talk about it, what we're thinking. And it turns out they just have to demolish the whole thing and start over the next day. Now this fire pit would have been big and it was beautiful work that they were working on, but it wasn't what was intended. And it wasn't what the architect had in mind when he set the plans. And so all their work that day was vanity. This is, in some ways, our passage today. If we were to look at the context of this passage, it is a song of ascents. Psalms chapter 120 through 134 are all song of ascents. And what that was is once a year, people living in Israel would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, to have their sacrifices done at the temple. So they do this once a year. And on their way up to Jerusalem, because you'd have to go up to get to the city, they would sing these songs that were reflective of the pilgrimage of the Jewish life. So they would sing these songs that would be a reminder of their process of relationship with God throughout all of life. And this is one of those songs. It's a song that is a reminder of our process throughout life as believers. The second piece of context that I think is really important for us is that this was written by Solomon. Solomon was the son of the great King David, and Solomon was the one who built the temple. But when Solomon says house here, he's actually referring to the temple. You see, in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God says, that's not for you to do, that is for your son. And so Solomon was the one who was responsible for building the house of God, the temple. The city in reference would have been Jerusalem, the city of God. So the building of the house of God and the building of the city of God is what we're specifically referring to in this passage. I think there's some keys that we need to interpret this text. One of those things is to look for repetition. Here in this passage, the Lord is mentioned or referred to four times in two verses. If that ever happens, it's probably important. The other thing that's mentioned a couple times is vanity. We have vanity mentioned three times, which means it is also important. And so I think the first thing that we need to pull from this is we need to understand that the Lord's role is key to understanding our work. 
and orienting our lives to our work rightly. You see, without the Lord and without understanding where He is directing and where He is guiding and where He is leading, all that we do is vanity. Or a better word for this would be mist or vapor, because I don't want you thinking of vanity fair. So a better word for this is mist or vapor. So it's like something that's out in the, in the distance and you see, oh man, there's something there. And you get up and you swipe your hand through the mist or vapor and it just dissipates, it disappears. Revealing that there was really no substance there at all. It was just a mist, a vapor. It looked like something, but it wasn't. The next thing I think we need to pull out from this text is that there are two builders. There are those who are putting their work, their hands to the work of the house. And there is God. There are two watchers. There are those who stay up late and watch over the city and protect it. And there is God. The work we are entering into is a very real work. We do not put our hands to work, to the work in front of us, vain, uh, without actually doing something. It's not that if God's not in it, work won't happen. Work will still happen, but the work will be vanity. The text does not imply that nothing will get built. Something will indeed get built. Resources will be spent. Man hours will be invested. Strategic planning will take place. And at the end of the day, it might be big and grand and attractive to the eyes. It might be that fire pit that could roast a pig. But if it's not what the Lord intends, if the Lord is not in it, if the Lord is not the one doing the building or the watching, it will not matter. It will be pointless. We're talking about vision for our church for the future. And if God is not at work in the building of this church, then none of the methods we bring to the table will ultimately accomplish anything of substance. It doesn't matter how big it is or how beautiful it is or how smart it seemingly is. It might be the most wise thing that the world could come up with. And if the Lord's not in it, it will not matter. It's all vanity, a mist. I am, I am praying that the Lord gives me 40 years here at this church, pastoring. I have no plans to go anywhere unless the Lord whisks me away. I want to be here in this community, in this city, with this people for 40 years. And I'm praying that during that time we would leave a gospel legacy in this city and that we would build a church that outlasts every single one of us. Amen. I don't want a church that thrives on me. Right. <laughs> That's useless. I'm going to die someday. I want a church that's eternal, that thrives on something that's eternal. And the only way that we can do this is if God is in the building of this church. He is eternal and we are not. So we want to do as best a job as we possibly can building our church upon eternal things and not things that will be temporary. 
And I believe wholeheartedly that this is how we stand firm amidst the changing cultures of our world, the changing cultures of our nation. And I believe that this is how God, the gospel and Christianity transcends cultures because it's not based on temporary things. It's based on eternal things. This is how we have an unwavering foundation when we base it upon the things that God has established forever. Every time we come to a passage, I think our, our job is to say, how do we see Jesus in this? What is this? As Christians who understand the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, how do we make sense of this passage? What, what does Jesus do to inform this passage? And I think there's an interesting gospel connection here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church, if you're not familiar, um, I hope one day to preach through 1 Corinthians. I think it's incredibly relevant for the church today. The church in Corinthians is just rife with division and disunity. They are, they are looking at all the temporal things to define what success is. In fact, Paul's first three chapters are pretty much, hey, the wisdom of God is folly to man. So if you're looking for the wisdom of man, you're going to miss God. And that's important for us to recognize. So Paul's writing to this church. He's saying, hey, the wisdom of God is folly to man. The wisdom of God is folly to man. Don't divide over things that are not of God. Don't divide over things of appearance. And then he comes to chapter 3, verses 10. 10 through 15 is what we're going to be looking at today. And he says this, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So I think there's some points of importance here. You see, Paul says that according to the grace of God given him, he builds. He's not building based on something that has not been given to him already, so he recognizes that anything he can build, he can only build because of the grace of God. Amen. And it says that he laid a foundation, and this foundation is vital and so important because if we build on any other foundation than this, we might as well close the doors and go home. He builds on the foundation of Christ, of Jesus. This church started upon that foundation. I talked with Sharon Walker a bit ago, or Julie talked with Sharon Walker a bit ago, and Sharon shared with her, we just wanted people to see Jesus. That's what we want. We want people to see Jesus. You see, that foundation that Paul laid in Corinth was Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation worth building upon. All other ground is sinking sand. 
But then he gives a little disclaimer. This foundation has been laid, but there is a building that happens on top of the foundation. And the way that you build on top of this foundation matters. It really matters. And he lays out a distinction of, of a, a few different types of materials. There's some materials in this passage like gold and silver and precious stones that would survive fire. And then you see some other materials as well like wood and hay and straw, which if fire came would destroy. This is not a text to say we need to, we need to put gold floors in. I'm not saying that. That's not what this text is saying. Paul is using analogy to communicate something very important to us, that if we build based on materials that might be quicker, easier, more, like more enjoyable to build with, if we do that and we don't look to eternal things, then those things are going to be burned by the fire and taken away. It is absolutely possible to build upon the foundation of Christ and alter to self. To use Jesus to build up self is absolutely possible. In fact, it happens often in religious circles because religion can tend to be very, very beautiful or very useful to the religious. But to the sinner who understands what Jesus has done, Jesus is just pure and unadulterated beauty. It is absolutely possible to be f more focused on success and using Jesus to get there. It is absolutely possible to be more focused on wealth and using Jesus to get there. And it is absolutely possible to be more focused on your own personal pride, reputation, and self-righteousness and using Jesus to get there. But each person's work that is built upon this foundation will be tested. And the work that is not based upon eternal things will be burned up. Now here's an amazing, just real quick, let's, let's bring in some beauty to this. It doesn't, at the end of it, it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the work that we build, how we put our hands to the work. Will the work that we do be eternal? Will it outlast us? And Paul just opens this passage by saying, like he opens this book of 1 Corinthians by saying that wisdom of man is folly to the people of, or to God. I mean, we look at Jesus on the cross and Jesus dying on the cross. Like what? Death for death leads to victory? How does that work? That doesn't make sense to us does not make sense to the world. It's foolishness that his humiliation would lead to our exaltation. To the world, that looks wrong and off, but the reality of the gospel is that he is different than man. <laughs> we look to the things that are of God. Jesus is the foundation that's laid, and we want to build upon him with eternal things. And so I think that's what we really need to focus on happens in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool 
that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. We never want to get so far away from what the Lord is doing and focusing on our own wisdom that we actually miss out on what he is attempting to accomplish. So my heart for this church is not that we would build based off what we think works or what seems to work based on what men man thinks, but that we would say, Lord, what are you doing? How can we follow your spirit? And so if this is the case, if all this work will be built up, how do we know what's eternal? How then should we build? If this is the reality for those who build, how can we make sure that what we are building here at this church lasts? How can, how can we ensure that? I think the first thing is we make sure that we're building on the foundation of Christ and Christ crucified. If our church exists to exalt anything but Christ, we have failed. If my life exists to exalt anything but Christ, I have failed. And so it's ridiculously important that as a church, we are centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just something that gets you in the door and then you live your good life to make sure you check off all the boxes. The gospel and the implications of the gospel influence every single area of your life. Not just what you do on Sunday mornings. In Acts chapter 19, this amazing thing happens. Paul preaches a sermon in Ephesus, and so many people get saved and give their life to the Lord that it affects the economy. What? That is not your typical Sunday morning, show up to church and then go live your life. Does, your, does the gospel affect your economy? Because it should. The implications of the gospel for our lives influence everything. Amen. So we want to make sure that we are centered around the person and work of Christ. The entire scripture, every single bit of it points to Jesus. He makes it work. Without Jesus, we don't really, we can't make sense of the Bible in a way that makes sense. And so if that's what the Bible is centered around, then that's what our lives should be centered around. So we want to build with the Word of God. The Word is centered around Christ. We want to be centered around Christ. And the Word of God is the only thing that God promises will accomplish its intended purpose. That's, <laughs> there's nothing else that God says that'll, like the Word, that's it. And there's two folds to that. That's the word that is preached and the word that is here before us in our Bibles, but it's also referring to the word that is made flesh, Jesus. The only things that will accomplish their intended purpose are those. It's the only thing Jesus or God promises will accomplish his, its intended purpose. And so we want to make sure that we are centered and grounded and rooted in the word of God. We don't want to just say that the word is this nice thing that we pick some proof texts and preach some sermons to uplift our own views. We want to say, what does the word of God say? Amen. What does the word of God say in its context? What is the, the word of God's, what is it really saying to us? And how can we make sure that we are living on that word? Not just on Sunday mornings.
The third thing is I think that we build by the power and leading of the Spirit and not of the flesh. I am so thankful that we started off this year with prayer and fasting. I, I hope it becomes a more regular rhythm in our lives. Because we can strategic plan and do SWOT analysis, or we can, we can do all the things that a business would do. And those are good things. They have their rightful place. They're important. We want to steward the things of God well. But if we do all of that and we don't actually pay attention to what the Spirit is doing, we're going to miss the boat. We're going to miss what we're supposed to be doing. Our first reaction to anything that happens, and I'll just be honest, I'm a work in progress here. Our first reaction to anything that happens should be to turn to God and say, how would you have us handle this situation? What's your wisdom for this moment? And I think prayer is key to doing this. One of my favorite reformers says this. He says, For we prosper only when our hope rests wholly upon God. And moreover, the outcome of our work will depend on how we pray. But if anyone pushes God into the background and hastens eagerly ahead, his hurried rush will surely end in a fall. It does not matter how good the strategies of the world are. The minute we start to rely on them to produce a desired result, we will walk in direct contrast to relying upon God, who calls us to seek him, to seek his power, to seek his wisdom, this wisdom that is foolishness to man. And this doesn't mean that we don't plan or study or try and grow and try new things. That doesn't mean that. It just means that the only proven strategy for our church is to rely on the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's, that's it. The only proven strategy for the church historically is to look to God. And so we want to make sure that we're doing that in everything. First and foremost, looking to Christ. Leaning into the Spirit, asking God what He would have us do. I think the last way to make sure that we are building in a way that is eternal is we build by discipling. I've heard, I've heard people call parenting um, planned obsolescence, um, which means that one day I'm going to be obsolete and here's this kid to remind me of that at every single point in time. <laughs> every single one of us has an expiration date. The only way that this moves forward is if we're discipling people to take it from us and move it in that direction. Jill and I have had multiple conversations about how, how do we move forward with this church, and I'm just gonna be honest, I'm already thinking of the next guy. I wanna be here for 40 years but I want to leave a church for him, whoever he is, that's ready for him. Amen. We always think of who's next, and we always build by discipling. This is, this is fascinating. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission to his disciples. And it's a, it's a beautiful passage. He says, Go therefore into all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that's an important key, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. I think that one of the things we need to recognize is when he says, behold, I am with you, it's in direct context to the work of disciple making. When God said, when Jesus says, hey, behold, I'm with you, it's in disciple making that he is with us. If we are not making disciples, I think we're missing out one on a command of Jesus. Actually, this is something Cam gave me a couple months ago. I'm going to steal from Cam here. Since he's in the building, this is great. Cam and I were talking. We were hanging out in my backyard. We were playing some basketball. And, and he, he made this observation that if commands from God are to lead to human flourishing, then when we don't disciple people, we're actually not flourishing as believers and as human beings. So discipling people by teaching them to observe the commandments of Jesus, and here's important as well, the commandments of Jesus, not the commandments of self, right? We want to disciple people to look like Christ, not to look like me. And we don't flourish if we don't do that. If we are not involved in the work of disciple making, we are not going to be able to live out the beauty of our humanity that God had intended. And this is not just something that happens in the New Testament. This is a Garden of Eden principle. Be fruitful and multiply. Let me see if I can bring this home. It can be easy to hear that, that when we don't build rightly, that God's not in it and it's vanity and think, oh my goodness, what happens if it all falls apart? What do we do? What if I just missed the mark? Well, now we come to verse 2 of Psalm 127. He says that it is in vain that you rise, or you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He works in our rest. Now, there's something that's really important here. Outside of Christ... Rest does not exist for us. We will just always anxiously toil in our building. Without Christ, it's just anxious toil. Because it's vain to build without Christ. But here's what's also vain. It's vain to anxiously build with Christ. So we're going to hold on to these principles that, that we are going to disciple people. We are going to pray and be led by the Spirit. We are always, always going to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And we're going to walk forward resting in Christ, knowing that he will build his church. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved, and rest exists for you. He gives you sleep. He is not tired of you. In fact, he's upholding you even in your rest. There, there are nights when I lie awake thinking about all the things and the details that need to happen and, and stressing. And, and I'll just be honest, when Emmerich was just about to be born, I, I was sitting in his nursery and I'm just like, Lord, what if, what if he doesn't follow you because of me? And I just remember the Lord speaking so clearly, salvation is dependent upon me, not you. 
The Lord is working. Absolutely. And he works in our resting in him. If you are not in Christ, I just want to ask you right now, have you, have you grown tired of constantly building up your own personal kingdom? Have you, have you grown tired of the rat race of trying to always build self? Have you gotten tired of yourself yet? Rest is made available to you. And the only way that you can attain it is to collapse into the arms of God who upholds the universe in his hand and is certainly capable of upholding you. When God is in our work, our anxious toil is also vanity. We can rest in him. We can trust that he will build his church. The text tells us that he gives his beloved sleep. And when we are centered on him, we can trust that he is working to build the house. And I think this helps us to be more kingdom-minded. We don't hold tightly to people saying, we got to keep him here. We want to say freely, like, the Lord's building his kingdom all across the world. It's not just happening here in Jesus' chapel. So when we're discouraged with what's happening in our church, we look out and we say, what is the Lord doing in the world today? He's still working. He's still got it. It's not reliant upon us. It's on him. And so I want to, I want to finish with a quote, and then um, we're going to sing a chorus a cappella together, and then the worship team will come up and close us out. But the quote is this from J.C. Ryle. He says this. He says, We ought to feel deeply thankful that the building of the true church is laid on the shoulders of one that is mighty. If the work depended on man, it would soon stand still. But blessed be God. The work is in the hands of a builder who never fails to accomplish his designs. Christ is the almighty builder. He will carry on his work. Though nations and visible churches may not know their duty, Christ will never fail. That which he has undertaken, he will certainly accomplish. Let me read that last part again. Christ will never fail. That which he has undertaken, he will certainly accomplish. So I want to I just start our 40-year 40 40 journey here with something really encouraging. We're going to sing a cappella, the first verse and chorus to the song, All Glory Be to Christ. And we're going to sing it together. The lyrics will be up on, on the screen. Once they get up there, I'll just, I'll lead us. You can just go to the next slide. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow, 
those gain. Tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. All the glory to you and you alone, God, our strength and our redeemer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.